0: You guys can grab a seat. Uh, thank you, Matthew, for leading. Thank you, tech guys, set up, everybody for making this Sunday possible. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Hebrews chapter 5 is where we're going to land. Um, and, and this week, we have something to celebrate, right? I mean, just with culture and everything, uh, we need to focus on something that, that we need to celebrate this morning. So now here's the first thing. As you're flipping to Hebrews 5, here's what we need to celebrate. Friends, this is Master's Week. All right? Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear from the outset. If you don't know what the Master's is, there's the door. You will not fit in here. Go ahead and start walking. I hope you got boots on because they're made for walking. Matt, but hold on. You got to lead worship after, so you can leave later. Just kidding. No, but Masters Week is this week, which I'm excited about. Uh, I'm not preaching next week, which is convenient, but I'll be here, but I might be watching Masters. So, uh, Daniel, you better have a good sermon prepared, uh, or else I'll just be watching golf. Um, But just kidding. Hebrews chapter 5 is where we're going to be. I'm excited about this morning, and as I was reading through the text and preparing the text, um, this thought has kept coming over and over in my mind. Um, Because as most of you guys know, first off, my name's Gabe. Uh, I I know you don't maybe recognize me in this fly blazer, but my name's Gabe. Um, We've got four kids. And here's what I catch myself telling my kids over and over and over and over and over over again. Uh, Because they fight about the silliest. Just just curious, are there sibling groups in here? Are there any, like, brother, sister? Uh, Well, but y'all are angels. Y'all never fight, do you? (laughs) No. uh, Okay, uh, so, so we could have some Q&A back and forth, but just the ridiculous things that kids fight over. So, so here's my philosophy of parenting right now, and this will probably change, but here's what I try to accomplish. I'll pull the kid aside. Typically, it's one. I'll pull them aside and say, listen, I know you're really upset, but would you just—will this matter in two days? Like, with what you're upset about right now, that you don't get to sit in the middle seat on the way to church— Will this matter right now? That your sibling looked at you wrongly, will this matter in two weeks now? And typically, most of the time, cooler heads will prevail. No, Dad, it's not a big deal. It won't matter. But, but ever since I've been doing this to my kids, the Lord is like, hey, that's a great principle Pastor, you should do that to yourself. So even in the ironies of ironies, I don't, I don't think you guys realize what a pastor goes through in preparing the text, because if, if the Lord doesn't feel like we know it and embody it, uh, he's going to lead us through things in the week or two leading up to the sermon that's going to make us live this and embody this. So here's what I mean. No joke. Any Apple users in here? Jazzy Jazz. What up, girl? Uh, this week, I'm writing this sermon in this introduction, as I'm writing, literally, literally, literally writing this part about does this matter in two weeks or two days, and the pinwheel of death pops up, and it stays. And as a good procrastinator that I am, I had not yet saved my sermon And it stays, and it stays, and so I'm trying to grab my phone and take a picture of the screen so that I can at least type up what and then it crashes. Thank you, Microsoft. So in this moment, I've got my laptop in my hands. It's now crashed. It's rebooting, and I want to throw it through the wall. And God just whispers, hey, pastor, will this matter in two days? It's like, not funny, God. Not funny at all. No, I don't like this one bit. So here's what we have to see. Here's the main theme that we're going to see in this text is do we as a church, do we as an individual, do we as a family group, as a family unit, have this eternal perspective in mind when it comes to the things of God? Because most of the time what we'll see as we start to work through this is we don't. We view everything as temporary. We view everything as internal, internal Gratification, we, we just want it now, give it to me, it's, it's mine, I want it. We have no real framework for waiting, for the big picture, for what's to come. Instant gratification, give it to me now. So what does it look like then to change our minds, to repent from this mindset, and to see things from a bigger picture, from an eternal point of view, which is what the text is going to point us to this morning. So Ephesians 5, we're going to read 10 verses, 1 through 10, and then we'll pray and we'll work through this together. Ephesians 5, 1 through 10. Hebrews is what I said. That's what you heard me say. (laughs) Thanks, brother. (laughs) Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacri- obligated, excuse me, to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 6. And also he, he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you for giving it to us so that we can study, so that we can marinate in. God, would we fix our eyes on you, our eternal salvation, our eternal hope, our eternal joy. God, would we not focus on things that are temporary, but only those that are eternal. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, just a little bit of context here to make sure where we all are, because this is a masterfully written passage, carefully uh, crafted, so that we can understand the character and nature. Of God. So last week we started with this theme of the great high priest, that Jesus was not only the high priest, but he was the great high priest. And we've seen this theme develop over the book of Hebrews, that the author of Hebrews is going to constantly say, hey, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than now the high priest, because he is the great high priest. That's why we've entitled this series, Jesus is Greater, because that's all that the author intends for the Hebrews to see to hear, to understand that, that Jesus is greater than all. Because they were starting to doubt. They were starting to wonder because of the circumstances that were going on in their life. It was raising some doubt. Maybe Jesus isn't greater. Maybe I need to go back to my Jewish traditions. Maybe Jesus wasn't actually the incarnate son of God. And if you're honest with me, and I can be honest with you, we've, we've all had those thoughts as Christians We've had those moments of doubt where maybe following Jesus was the wrong thing to do because we start to see that other things are of first importance. Other things are greater than Jesus, but what we will eventually find out is all of those are idolatry. They're emptiness. They do not last. They are temporary. So if you were here with us last week, we went through Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And in Hebrews 4 at 14, it says, since then we have a great high priest. And if you remember last week, I said, hey, look, we're going to highlight high priest real quick, but all of that's coming next week. Well, that is now this week. So we're going to look at what it means for Jesus to be the great high priest. And the easiest way that the author does this is to compare and contrast with the framework that they already have, which is the high priest. And so as this passage is written it's called a chiasmus and and there's going to be a slide up here that kind of looks at this is an ancient uh, rhetoric way for For those that are writing this to write it, but then also for those that are reading it to remember it, to internalize it, uh, and to use it in argumentation. So um, you can see A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. So every point that is made in verses 1 through 4 uh, is going to be countermade in verses 5 through 10, Why Jesus is the better version, the greater version of the high priest that they first Understood. So, so the way we're going to teach it is we're gonna. It's going to be a little different than what we normally do. Uh, but I'm going to teach verse one and verse uh, ten together. I'm going to teach verse one and verse nine together. Two and three and seven, eight together. Four and five together. So that we can constantly compare and contrast. And, and here's why I'm going to do it this way. Two quick reasons. Uh, one, because it's written that way. I just think it would be most appropriate. Uh, but two. The author of this was assuming, and assuming correctly, not incorrectly, the knowledge that, that the people in Hebrews had of the high priest. So he could make all the points in verse 1 through 4 and then juxtapose it, compare it, and, and they're still tracking, they're falling. But for us, we have no real framework. It's just curious, has anyone met a high priest no, we have no framework for the high priest. So, so I think it'd be most beneficial for us to keep these two thoughts congruent together. So uh, there, there's gonna be four, as you can see, four main points that the author of Hebrews combines. And, and here's, here's just real quick, let me taste a rabbit before we get started into this. Uh, some of you have asked, man, why are you wearing a blazer and wingtip shoes? Of these four points, they all start with S. And after these four points of S, I have an illustration. So I am feeling Southern Baptist today. So I'm wearing wingtip shoes that I just scuffed. Dad gummit. I'm not going to look down because I'm going to get really upset and be distracted because I just scuffed new shoes. Uh, seriously, a church member bought these shoes for me uh, because I don't know if this is their, their motivation, but we had someone leave the branch one time because uh, one of the reasons they cited was I preached in Chaco's. This brother was like, man, you need to wear your best. I'm like, well, Chacos are over $100, so those were actually my best. But (laughs) I digress. Here's, here's what I want us to look at. Here's what I want us to see. These, these four reasons, A, B, C, and D. And, and guys, you can leave this up the whole time so that we can kind of track along and follow because uh, it gets a little messy at some level. But, but we're going to look first at the old office of the high priest juxtaposed compared to the new office of the high priest. And the main idea we're going to see here, starts with an S, a Solidarity. So we see verse one, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So this is the Old Testament high priest. Now, I'm going to assume a few things of knowledge in here because Dylan did an incredible job back in August preaching through the high priest system in Leviticus. So I'm not going to retain everything from that, but I'll bounce back and forth to Leviticus so that we can all be on the same page. So so verse 1, we see the explanation or a quick overview of what an Old Testament high priest would be. But then verse 10, we see the culmination of that, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is assumed here being designated by God, a high priest. So the first thing that we need to understand about the office, the position of high priest is this idea of solidarity. Solidarity meaning oneness with humanity. So the high priest had to, he had to be living among the people, being with the people because the high priest was the connection between the people and God. So he had to be with both. He had to constantly be with God in the presence of God, pursuing God. But simultaneously, he had to be with the people, understanding the sins and the needs of people, because he was the linchpin. He was the one that took the sins of the people of God to the presence and the power of God. So there must be solidarity. There must be oneness among the people, because he was to act in relation to God from men. So the high priest could not be someone that retreated away from the world, retreated away from men and women. He had to run to them. The high priest had to be someone that cared deeply, that spent time with, that loved people. Now, even as I'm describing that, who does that sound like? Flip with me over to Mark Two. Because once we understand that Jesus is the great high priest, and that the first role that the high priest had based on Hebrews 5 is solidarity, is oneness among the people, we must clearly see how incredible Jesus lived and modeled this out. Because Jesus is not just a high priest, he's the great high priest. And Mark, did I say Matthew or Mark? Mark 2. 13 through 17. Now, just as we're reading this or as you're having this read over, you just consider the solidarity that Jesus had with the people. He, Jesus, Mark 2, sorry, pick it up in verse 13. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching. And he, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, not to Jesus, because they're cowards, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So as we consider this idea that I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners, in the idea that Jesus was the great high priest, that he was living incarnate on planet earth in solidarity, in oneness with the people of God. That is what the great high priest was commanded to do. That was what he was called to do, to be the in-between between between the people and between God. And you cannot be, you cannot be the in-between if you're not with people and with God. So we clearly see the great high priest was among one of the main concerns or, or questions from the Pharisees to Jesus was this simple fact of how much he was with sinners, how much he was with tax collectors. But once we have the lenses to see that that's because he was the great high priest, he was here with the solidarity between the people far from God, drawing them to God, it starts to make a little bit more sense, doesn't it? So the first thing, the juxtaposition we see is the old office of the high priest and the new office of the high priest, that Jesus is the greater high priest because he lives in greater solidarity. The next that we're going to see is the sacrifice Look with me again, verse 1 in Hebrews 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So now we compare that to Jesus, the great high priest, in verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, this is something that Dylan clearly taught back in August, uh, and, and I, I believe it was recorded. You should definitely go back and listen to it. But, but very quickly, here's what's happening here, that the high priest in verse 1 made gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people of God. And so on one day of year called the Day of Atonement, or even now this is still might be a familiar phrase, Yom Kippur, right? On the Day of Atonement, He would take the sacrifice on himself to sacrifice for the sins of people. Then it would happen in two ways. He would have the goat that he would come in, sacrifice, spill the blood on the mercy seat. It was a gory scene. And we have to see this. We have to understand because that's how God feels about sin that there must be sacrifice, there must be punishment, there must be blood spilt out because the wrath of God hates sin. So it must be poured out. It can't just be overlooked, but it must be atoned for. And then the second would be the scapegoat, that the high priest would lay his hands on the goat, would confess the sins of the people of God, and then they would set the goat free out of their presence. So this is the day of atonement. This is what the author of Hebrew is saying, that he would offer sacrifices and sit for the sins of the people. But verse 9 says a little differently, that he became the source. Jesus, the great high priest, became the source of eternal salvation. There was no more need for goats. There's no need for lambs or for animal sacrifices because Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice for us. Romans 6, 9-11 through 11 puts it this way. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the atonement that must have taken place, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, once a year after Christ, the great high priest, ceases to exist. It's done once and for all. Eternal salvation has been placed It's why we don't do this yearly celebration of atonement anymore, because Christ, the great high priest, has become the eternal salvation, the once for all. It's done, it's finished. Ephesians 1 7 through 8 would put it this way In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And the day of atonement yearly has now ceased because the power of Christ on the cross. He is the ultimate great high priest. And next we're going to look at verse 2. Because we've seen the solidarity, we've seen the sacrifice. But now we'll see the role of the high priest has a role of sympathy. And Jesus models that even more. Ephesians 5 verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now let us look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And though he was heard because of his reverence, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Yeah, it's hot. I don't know why I even did that. So, so here's what we have to see, because this is a really interesting comparison here. Uh, one that just for me in this sermon prep, uh, I spent the most time thinking through. Because Leviticus 16 would clearly say, Yes, before the goats, before the sacrifice of the goats, spilling the blood on the mercy seat, and then putting the hands on the goats, confessing the sins of the nation of Israel and sending them out, that the high priest Aaron first and foremost had to make sacrifice for his sins through killing a goat, or excuse me, killing a uh, cow for himself. Slaughtering an, an animal for himself and the sins of his family. So first and foremost, he had to take care of the sins of himself because as he entered in the Holy of Holies, if he had not, he would be stricken dead right there on the spot. So because of that, when we look at verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, or those that are waywardy going away from Christ because of their ignorance. He is beset with weakness. He can relate to this weakness. Uh, uh, maybe another way to say this from the Greek is he is surrounded by or hanged with this weakness. He feels it. He understands it. The high priest would never want do say, I don't, I don't need to sacrifice anything for myself. I can just clearly walk into the Holy of Holies because I have no sin within me. No high priest would have said that. So they slaughtered the cow so that they could do that, so they could atone for their own sins before they walked into the Holy of Holies to make uh, atonement for the sin of the people of God. But here's what we have to see. Jesus can relate in that. Jesus has the sympathy. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So we looked last weekend and we really dived into that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, that he understands the temptations that we will face. He understands the weakness that we have because although he is fully God, he was fully man, he gets it. He understands that he understands the pain, the hurt, the temptation to sin, the weakness in the flesh. But the difference between us, the difference between the high priest and the difference between Jesus Christ is he never once did. He never sinned. So this idea in verse 9, which can trip some people up, excuse me, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered does not then imply that he was once disobedient and he grew into being obedient. No, that's not what this passage is saying at all. It's more saying that he stayed obedient through suffering, that he was perfected his obedience through the way that he suffered. Because Philippians 2 would put it this way, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that's, that's a sympathy there, right? That's, that's a relatable offense the process of being humbled. Does anyone in this room love that process of God just humbling us, bringing us to our knees? Oh, Carlton, I thought you were raising your hand. No, 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 no one does. So this idea that Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death, death on the cross. He understands the idea of suffering because he is the great high priest. He can sympathize with his people. He can live in solidarity with his people. And all through the way, he stayed sinless. He stayed obedient to the heart of the Father. And here's the last one that we'll see as we look at these. The appointment of the high priest versus the appointment of Christ, the new priest. This idea of the selection Look with me at verse four. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. No one takes the position of high priest for himself, but only those who was called by God just as Aaron was. But look at verse 5, how Jesus responds. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now listen, there are a few examples within Scripture that we clearly see men that try to take the office of high priest. You want to guess what happens to them? So Korah and his 250 followers were swallowed by the earth because they elevated themselves to the priestly office by burning unauthorized incense, we see in Numbers 16. Saul lost his reign because he impatiently assumed Samuel's priestly function. We see that in 1 Samuel 18. And King Uzziah, the one that we see, Isaiah 6, in the year that Uzziah died, we saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah flamed out, fantastically because he utilized the priestly censor and instantly broke out with leprosy that lasted until the day of his death, 2 Chronicles 26. So no one walks in assuming the office of the high priest. Aaron didn't. No one in the Old Testament that filled that office of high priest assumed it lest they would be destroyed by the wrath of God. And in the same way, Jesus did not assume it. But it was given to him just as Aaron; it was given to him. But here's where we get to see a little bit more of who Jesus is in this role, because the author of, uh, excuse me, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalms twice here, which I think both are very important to see. First, he quotes Psalm two seven. First, he quotes Psalm two seven. You are my son today; I have begotten you. And here we get to understand here. That Jesus is not only the high priest, but he is royalty, that He is the king among kings. He is the heir to Christ. No high priest could ever say that. No one could ever own up to that. And then secondly, we see Psalm 1:10:1. 1. I think I said those backwards. It's okay. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, now again, as the author of Hebrews, we've got to think of this as a sermon. This idea of Melchizedek is going to continue to be illustrated and explained. So, so I'm just going to do a quick flyby. But, but here's what we see in Genesis 14:18 through 20. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine because he was a priest of the God most high. So here's the first time that we see these two separate offices combined into one, that he was the king of Salem, but he was also the priest Of God Most High. So we have within Jesus the great high priest, not that he was just the great high priest, but the order of Melchizedek. So he is the royal high priest. He is the king of high priests. He is the king of kings. He is the high priest. He is of separate significance and order. There has been none like him. There will never be any like him because he is the royal high priest. His selection is all the more different. So let's look back then at verse 9. Because this is where we can start. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? If we look at verse 9, I just want to draw our attention to this one phrase. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Eternal salvation. Here's the massive truth that I want us to think on, pray about, consider as we leave this place this week, that our, our mind must match our souls in an eternal mindset. Because our souls know. John 17:3. this is eternal life that we know Christ. If you're a believer in this room, yes, your body will fail you. Death will take place, but our souls never will. But if you're anything like me, if you're anything like what the scripture describes, the eternalness of that mindset doesn't quite get there. Because everything in our life screams an answer right now. And we lose the forest for the trees. We lose this eternal mindset. And if we're not careful, which we haven't been, Bixie Church, we're part of that. We just look like the world. Our problems look like the world. Our solutions look like the world. Our mindset looks like the world. So, so just assume with me for a second here, I, I've got this rope, right? Uh, and it goes all the way to the back. It, it slides underneath the uh, bleachers back there, goes out the back door. Uh, not really, that's not true. I didn't get a long enough rope. It stopped right there at the bleachers. But, but just imagine for me real quick that, that this is our life. From the beginning, you can't really see the ending. This, this is a timetable of our life. And what helps me understand, and maybe what would help us understand, is if this is our life that goes all the way, Davis, you want to hold it up back there? Just keeps going and going. Don't pull it off and run the bleachers. You're going to ruin this. Keeps going and going and going, right? Because it never ends. This is not a 100-foot rope. This is an eternal rope. I did not get this at Walmart. Jesus made this for me. What does our life look like in light of eternity? If this rope was our lives, what does our life look like? So, so we can get some tape here, but, but I even think this would be too much. What if, we, what if we just did this? And church, I would implore you, even this is too much. In light of eternity, this is us. In light of a timetable that never ends, this temporary life on earth is this little thing. Cameras, can you zoom in here so the world can see this? We don't have cameras. But this is it. This is all we have to offer So when we really get this, when we really understand verse 9, this eternal salvation, salvation that never ends, our eternity is set. But how much of our fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, selfishness, plans for our own lives consume this teeny little line when we've got rope after rope after rope of eternity that we don't even think about, that we don't even consider? What decisions have we made this week? that we're from an eternal mindset and not just of a temporary mindset. So the author is pleading with us in the book of Hebrews to get over ourselves, to get over the things that are temporary because our life is nothing more but a mist. And, and please hear me. I, I'm not trying to discourage us. One, I'm trying just to preach the word of God, but I'm trying to encourage us because James four thirteen through 14 would put it this way. Come now, You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are a mist. We are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So, so to maybe help us understand this mindset, let's, let's pick a current event that we could say, okay, what does it look like to have an eternal mindset versus a temporary mindset? Um, I don't know. Did anything happen this week? I feel like something was happening. Uh, the election. Yeah, I mean, so, so let me, as I'm going into this, let me just be completely honest about one thing. I could not keep up what was happening. I tried and tried and tried. I I still don't know litigation and all that kind of stuff. But here's what I know. Pending some crazy lawsuit that that wins, uh, President-elect Joe Biden will be our next president. Now, here's what we can do with that. Because there's a lot of temporariness that gets our mind wrapped up in this debate. There are a lot of things that we say, this matters way much more, and and if we're not careful, we create an idol out of the political system in our country. That we fight way much more for the politicalness than the gospelness of our lives. That we make way more posts, that we make way more arguments, that we spend so much more time in something that is temporary than what is eternal. Because as we read the scriptures, we see that God uses every kind of king for his glory. We cannot get around that. We see the greatest, the man after God's own heart, King David, who was also an adulterer, who was also a murderer, who also had massively wayward children. And last year, we studied the book of Nehemiah and saw King Artaxerxes, who was not a believer, who cared nothing for the things of God, but allowed Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and gave him all the funds to take care of it. And we're in this context right now within the book of Hebrews that we see, that we understand that death is looming for the people of God that this sermon is going to because King Nero is about to wipe them out. He's going to make lights among the streets from burning Christians. So what is the internal, eternal significance of this presidency, of this race? Here's what I know. This is not a time for conjecture. Here's what I know. Romans 13, 1 through 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who have existed have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Here's what I know. Christians cannot say, not my president. We can't. Romans 13 is clear. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. Christian, you cannot say that because you are denying the authority that God has placed over you. And therefore, denying the authority that God has over us. 1 Peter 2, 13-17. But be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or to the supreme. Or to governors who are sent by to punish those who do evil or to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you shall put to silence the ignorance and foolish of people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, context would say, well, maybe the emperor was a really good guy. False. Nope. That's not the case here. So what does this, what, what does this mean? So, so Gabe, are you saying like, just roll over and, and don't do anything? No, 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 no. That's, please don't hear me. Praise God that we live in a country where we have a democratic process, that we can vote, that we can make our voices heard. We should do all of those things. One of my favorite quotes by R.C. Sproul was simple. Is God sovereign or is man responsible? And he says, Yes. Yes. So, do we vote 10,000%? Do we fight for what we see to be biblical truth in the political system? Absolutely, yes. But do we lose sleep over this? No. Do we fight and quarrel among us? No. Do we willingly submit to the authority that God has placed over us? Yes. Because then we are learning to submit to the authority of God. So what does this mean then to live eternally minded when everything around us is shouting temporary significance? Focus your energy, church, on what is eternal, not temporary. Your efforts in evangelism reap eternal benefits. Your efforts in biblical reading reaps eternal benefits. Your efforts in prayer reap eternal benefits. Your time together with the body of Christ here and within family groups reap eternal benefits. So please hear me, engage in the political process, fight for what we see to be biblical justice. Speak up because we have that privilege. Speak up for the cause of Christ in our country. But realize that four years in light of eternity, is nothing. We've got way bigger fish to fry here, church. Because here's what will not be controlled of me. And uh, please hear me, I'm about to make a straw man argument. Let Let me just go somewhere else to take this out of the political realm of America. You know where statistically, proven year over year over year, seems to be, because it's hard to scientifically prove, but seems to be the fastest growing demographic of Christianity, communist China. I mean, no one can shut us up, church. We can preach the gospel and preach the gospel and preach the gospel till we die. And if, Lord willing, one day we get thrown into prison... Man, we just get to be like Paul. How great is that? Now again, this is straw man here. But man, can can we zoom out to see the things that are temporary here? I mean we're we're about to go home to Thanksgiving break. Now, I don't know about you. My my Thanksgiving, I have the cousin Eddie just like everyone else does. But but what if we were resolute to say, "Hey, my main focus in Thanksgiving dinner this year is to not argue politics, but to make the gospel of Jesus Christ look so beautiful. I mean, because very clearly Scripture teaches us this that we don't have to look like fools, that we don't have to enter into these arguments over and over and over again, but we can submit to the eternal lordship of Jesus Christ. Two, two passages here, and then I'll close. 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. And I really will close. I won't circle. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are not seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, let us focus on the things that are eternal, the things that are unseen. Last passage, Colossians 3, 1-4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I've said it. You've said it. We've probably all said it. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this. Church, just be encouraged. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because when we finally come face-to-face with our royal high priest, when we finally get to fall down and worship at the feet of those that were crucified for our sin, as we finally get to worship God forever, that we understand the eternal significance of everything that has ever happened always, everything is going to make sense in light of eternity that our short, momentary afflictions will be no more because we'll be in the presence of the king, the royal high priest, who has offered us eternal salvation through faith in him alone. And that is the good news of the gospel. So let us be of good cheer, church. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to worry. We have nothing to be concerned. Politically, socioeconomically, individually, go into Thanksgiving to see your cousin Eddie. We have nothing to fear. If you haven't seen Christmas Vacation, stop. Go do it today, or I'm going to put you in church discipline. We just don't, church. We have nothing to fear, because we have eternal salvation. We have eternal hope through our royal high priest, King Jesus. And let us worship and celebrate in that. So let's pray. Father, we have to repent this morning. Jesus, we have to confess how much, how much we focus on the temporary and how least we focus on the eternal. And Father, I feel the weight of Paul's words when he says he's the chief of sinners because I'm, I'm the worst at this, Father. I'm, I'm the first one to repent of this that 99.999% of my thoughts, actions, feelings, concerns are solely rooted in and based in the temporary. Father, I'm feeling the conviction of that right now. And so, Father, would would you change us? Would you do what only you can do? Father, we have been far too enamored by the things that are seen. And we've been far too quick to forget the things that are unseen. God, would we commit our lives to the things of eternity's sake? Would we trust in the sovereignty of you? In light of that sovereignty, would we work our tails off on the eternal things? The things that your scripture clearly shows us is of first importance. Father, because there is no mystery here, your word has clearly taught us, clearly proclaimed what is eternal, what we are to fight for. What we should be concerned with, the justice that you have should be a message of our hope. So church, as we sit here and think, my question for you is, what are the things that are temporary right now that have your concern over the things that are eternal? What did you wake up worrying about this morning, church? What kept you up at night this week? What causes fear, worry, doubt, anxiety in your heart right now in this moment? God, in your mercy, would you kindly reveal to us the idolatry that we have in our hearts, the idolatry of the temporary. That's it, the promise of eternity. Your word in 2 Thessalonians says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us And gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let that be our hope that we cling to this morning as we wrap our minds around the things that are eternal. Namely, eternal salvation. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.